With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. All of a sudden, I had thousands of people coming to my blog to tell me I was an idiot. It was horrible attention. People were saying stuff like, I hope your kids die in a school shooting, or I hope someone comes and kills and rapes your entire family. And I mean, like, really dreadful things. And I wanted to quit. And my mentor is like, you can't quit now. Just keep writing what you've been writing. It's all going to be okay. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of. It doesn't matter how badly you've gone beaten this be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go with your gut. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. This is episode two of our subculture series. Here, we'll deviate from the mainstream and explore communities that you might not have heard from, some that you actually might think are pretty weird, but you'll quickly find that these groups will challenge you to shed your preconceived notions and tap into your ingenuity, creativity, and vulnerability. If you let these experiences in, you might be able to change your life for the better. Today, I'll be talking to Daisy Luther, who at rock bottom scoured a grocery store dumpster to feed her and her daughter. That was the breaking point. When she realized she could lose everything in a moment, she wouldn't let that happen again. From that point on, she would be prepared. Now, Daisy is a successful co-founder of Preppers University, author of numerous books on emergency preparedness, and creator of the website, The Organic Prepper. So if you're ready, let's gear up and dive into a story about hardship, loss, and the will to overcome. To begin, we'll head to a tiny town in the South where Daisy was doing, well, what most normal kids her age do. My dad was a doctor. My mom stayed home. We were financially well-to-do. Probably some of the better-to-do families in our little town of 6,000 people, which, you know, big fish, small pond. So I never, ever experienced any kind of financial or food insecurity. I couldn't even imagine. What did that mean in terms of being the wealthiest of a small town? I mean, you know, I had all the lessons, the dance lessons, the piano lessons, going to the different classes, getting a tutor if I was struggling in a class at school, lots of vacations, a car for my 16th birthday, that type of thing. Like, I mean, it was a used car, but (laughs) (laughs) still still a car. And when did that change? Adulthood. Adulthood is when that changed. I went to college and I couldn't settle on a major. I think I had seven different majors over the course of two years. And I just, I couldn't settle on one thing because I was interested in lots of different things. And so I really am not formally very educated. Um, Most of it's just been through research and reading. Like I'm a voracious reader. I just like to learn. 
so when I was in college, you know, my family was still paying all my bills for me. Again, you know, I had a credit card that got paid off every month and it was like magic. When I left college, my parents weren't very happy with me. Why? Because they really wanted me to get a degree and, you know, make something of myself. And that was just the track that successful people were on in the 80s. I graduated high school in 1987 and you went to college and you got a degree and you got a job in that degree. And I couldn't even figure out what degree I wanted, much less how I wanted to spend the rest of my life. What was the decision to drop out like for you? Like, was it just because it was hard? Was it because you didn't like it? I'm not much of a rule follower. I didn't like having to abide by everybody's rules. If I felt like there was a better way to do a project, I wanted to do it my way instead of the professor's way, which got me into a great deal of trouble. And, you know, I've always been a questioner, which has gotten me in trouble since I was a child. But, you know, why is it that way? But why is it this way? Why do you believe that that's the truth and not what this book says is the truth? Like, can you explain your sources to me? I used to say that to my teachers and they would just be like, oh, just sit down and shut up. (laughs) Just listen to my (laughs) lesson. Just listen to me. (laughs) So I've never been good at things like that. I like to look at a lot of different sides of whatever topic it is I'm learning about, then compile that. Daisy has always questioned everything. She's not one to quickly fall in line simply because someone tells her to. In some ways, that's one of the foundational attributes for a lot of entrepreneurs. They want to abide by their own rules. But that kind of approach didn't mesh well with the demands of college. And upon leaving school, Daisy would discover just how unforgiving the real world could be. And so you you had this idea of, um, you know, you wanted to learn outside of school. What was it like that transition from college to outside of college in the real world? I was like, if they had had, you know, the van life and the Internet blogs and all that kind of stuff, if they had had that when I was 19 years old, I 100 percent would have done that. Instead, I just like hopped in my car and went to different cities and applied for jobs at bars and worked as a bartender or a waitress and, you know, made enough money to just get to the next city. And I just traveled around for a few years. I always felt so restless. I always wanted to see what was in that next city. I always wanted to wander around and be on the road and have that freedom to just do different things. I didn't want to be stuck doing the same thing all the time. And so when did things start to change? It changed when I met my the person I was going to marry, and um, we had a baby. And we got married, and that was when everything ground to a screeching halt. How old were you? I was 24. Did you feel ready? I just was absolutely astounded. (laughs) Like, how did this happen? Yeah, I was completely dumbfounded by it. 
have this big decision to decide, like, is this it? Is this the sign that it's time to settle down and get married and be a grown up now? And so I made the choice to go ahead and do that. And uh, boy, talk about a culture shock. Again, like I, I'm, I'm still sensing like everything is like kind of OK. But when did things start to be not OK? Well, um, I was living in Canada and um, I was actually not there legally at this point because I had just gone in on a tourist visa, met this guy. We fell in love. We had a baby. We got married, but I still didn't have like my visa, so I couldn't work. So I was completely dependent on my husband's income. And as a person who her entire adult life was completely independent and free spirited, that was really kind of crushing. It was really difficult to have to ask for money for things and to not have a way to make a living myself. And so that was when everything started to change, when I no longer had control over my own life. In losing control over her finances, Daisy lost a part of herself, of her sense of autonomy. It was a situation that was foreign to her, a stark contrast to the freedom of her youth. Now, instead of swiping a card with no strings attached, she found her stream of income regulated by her husband. And with a baby to care for, the pressure to provide intensified. With limited income, I imagine Daisy felt at a loss, but she was and is incredibly self-reliant and she would make it work. For now though, things weren't about to get any easier. And so how how did you deal with that? How did you cope with that? I mean, there was honestly there was no way to deal with it. It was like an endurance contest. So I have my baby And uh, just a couple of weeks after she was born, my husband came home from work and he had lost his job. And we lived in kind of a depressed area. There were no jobs to be found. He was applying for unemployment, but that takes weeks and weeks to come in. And I had just been to the grocery store. We had just paid our rent, so we had... I think maybe $15 to make it until whenever unemployment kicked in, which happened to be about eight weeks later. What did you do? How did you do that? We just each ate like a bagel a day, you know, because I was not there legally. I couldn't go apply for any kind of assistance or anything like that. It was just absolutely terrifying. I mean, I was just wondering, how am I going to keep this little baby alive when we have no money and no food? Some people gave us some formula. It was really humiliating. I mean, you go from being the rich girl to people are giving you stuff so your baby doesn't starve to death. Once unemployment kicked in, we, you know, did various different things to try to bring in some money. Like, I mean, I was just making up businesses out of the sky. (laughs) 
I have always known like a little bit about herbalism. So we had a computer and a printer and I, I bought some nice looking paper, like a parchmenty looking paper. And I wrote out all of these herbal recipes for various things. I went and I had this home party. I didn't have any inventory. And I was just telling people, you can do this and this and this and this. And then I took their money and I went and I bought the herbs and said, you know, that I had to like package everything up for them, make it special, and started just this little business doing little herbal tea home parties. And then we moved for a job that my, my husband had gotten and things just did not get better. We were kind of having marital problems because I think a lot of it was the financial stress. So he would be away for four to six weeks and I was in a strange city where I didn't know anyone. I, I wasn't able to make any kind of money. So this was kind of our rock bottom With her husband away, no money of her own, and a young daughter to care for, Daisy felt like she had hit a new low. How did she wind up so alone and so helpless? She was living a life she could never have imagined, but honestly, who could? In 2019, over 13.7 million households in the U.S. experienced food insecurity, a number only worsened by the pandemic. I can't imagine anyone anticipating that this would ever be something they or their family would face. But because we don't expect it, we don't prepare for it. At this point, Daisy hadn't prepared for it either. With only a few bags of bagels to last weeks, she knew she had to figure something out. But things would still get worse before they got better. We barely had enough to pay our rent. So he would pay the rent, leave me with a little money for the electric bill and the grocery bill. And then he would show up whenever. And because I didn't have a phone, I had no idea when he was coming back. So I had finally gotten to the point where I had gone through every single bit of food in my house. And on a walk, I had discovered that the grocery store threw food out every night. And it was stuff that was beyond its sell-by date and things like that. So I would go after dark and after everything was closed and I would just take some stuff out of the trash because that's the point I was at. Um, my daughter at this point was about two and, you know, she was eating regular food at this point, and I had to have something to feed her. And so I would go, I would get produce, and I would, you know, cut out the bad parts. I would get bread, and I would throw out the moldy part, or maybe it was just a little bit stale, so I would make it into toast. And I would just, um, like, put her in her stroller while she was sleeping at midnight, and I would walk over to the grocery store, and I would go through the dumpster. I would get food. Wait, with this, how 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 quickly did this become like a routine for you? Um, I had done this for about three weeks. Like as soon as I found it, I was like, okay, thank goodness we finally have a source of food. And I didn't feel like it was stealing. It was stuff they were throwing out. So I honestly did not think that this would be a big deal. So I was there one night with my sleeping baby. And I got like some broken cookies. I was really excited about those because I knew she'd be super happy to have a treat. 
and I had gotten some bread and I had gotten some vegetables and, you know, enough to keep us going for a few more days. And I saw blue lights and a police car pulled up. And a man and a woman police officer got out and they asked me what I was doing. I said, well, I'm getting stuff out of the trash, (laughs) you know, pretty obvious. And they asked me why. And I said, it's to supplement my groceries. And I figured that since this was just being thrown out, it wasn't a big deal. And they said, well, we can't let you take that because that's stealing. They took my trash groceries away and put it back in the trash and wouldn't let me take it and told me to just go home and take my baby home. You know, they had taken my address and all that. And mind you, at this point, I was still not legally in the country because we didn't have the money to file the paperwork. I mean, the abject terror I felt is really difficult to describe. I mean, first, are we going to starve to death? Second, are they going to take my baby away? Third, are they going to deport me? Like, I just had absolutely no idea what was going to happen. Daisy's situation sounds like every parent's worst nightmare. It's an example of pure desperation and an experience that no one should ever have to go through. She was on her own, without any money, and had a daughter to feed. This was about survival. But what I can't seem to shake from this bit of Daisy's story is the fact that this was considered stealing. I mean, let that sink in. For a person gripped by poverty, recovering wasted food is stealing? To put that absurdity into perspective, here in the States, U.S. grocery stores waste about 16 billion pounds of food a year. And that's happening as roughly 42 million people experience food insecurity. But the law is the law. And Daisy knew that she'd either have to back down now or risk being deported back to America. Things, however, were about to take an unexpected turn. They said someone had called and reported me. And I mean, I thought to myself, what kind of person calls the police on a woman with a little baby just getting food out of the trash. What kind of person does that? What an awful thing to do. Instead of helping, I know that if I saw someone in that situation, my first instinct would be to invite them over for dinner, not to call the police on them. But we went back and I was just devastated. I didn't sleep all night and I had no idea what we were going to do. I was, you know, I've, I've always been a list writer and I was writing down every option I could think of for, you know, ways to feed my kid. I was going to go to the library and look up like whatever edible things were growing wild in our area. Like I was going to come up with something. And then at about eight o'clock the next morning, uh, my doorbell rang and it was those two police officers. And I was like, oh, shit. Like, I'm absolutely screwed. They're here to take my daughter. And I didn't want to let them in, but I also didn't want to tick them off. (laughs) So I opened the door just to crack, and they were plain clothes. They weren't in a police car. And they said, we'd like you to come with us. We want to get you some help. And I didn't believe them. I thought, no, they're just going to, like, deport me or arrest me and take my kid. But they were very insistent. So 
you know, I had the, a, a car seat and they put us in the back seat of just a regular car. It wasn't a police car. And they took us to McDonald's for breakfast and I couldn't eat. I was so upset. Uh, my daughter was like tucking into those pancakes like nobody's business. I mean, she was absolutely thrilled and like they were just feeding the heck out of her. And I was trying to eat because I wanted to be polite, but I just had this knot in my stomach because I didn't know what was happening next. What happened next is they took me to a food bank and I had never been to a food bank before. Um, you know, I had grown up that, you know, you just don't take charity. You figure out a way to do it yourself. But obviously I was absolutely out of ways to do it myself. And so I got food at the food bank and they took us home with our food and they gave me some money. It was out of their own pocket. I mean, they were really very kind about it. Unofficially, they could help. Officially, they had to make me put it back in the trash. And they gave me their phone number and said, call us and we will give you a ride to the food bank again in a couple of weeks. I didn't tell them I couldn't call them because I didn't have a phone. I just said, thank you very much. And, you know, when my husband came back next week, I had told him what happened and we moved and that was the end of that. Wait, you moved front locations again? Why? Yeah. Just because the police had gotten involved and he wasn't happy about it. Why was he so afraid of the police? Not for any particular reason. He just felt that this was our personal business and he didn't like other people being involved in it. And I think that, you know, maybe it made him look like he was a, a bad provider. You know, a, a lot of people's ego is really tied up into those gender roles of, you know, we have to provide and we have to do this and we have to do that. Well, I mean, the providing wasn't really happening to the extent that it had to with me being unable to also chip in. So we moved into a city and then I was able to pick up some work just like off the books, babysitting and cleaning and things like that. And things got a little bit better. And, you know, I had a little bit more money for groceries and for things like that. And I had gotten a book at a library sale uh, called The Tightwad Gazette by Amy Decision. And um, it was all about frugality and building up a pantry to see you through hard times, like the ones that I had been going through. And I thought to myself, when I have money again, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to handle it. That helped me to build up that stockpile that I needed. Stockpile in terms of food? Um, food, shampoo, you know, baby wipes, you know, just the little things that you would go buy at the grocery store every week. I wanted to get a couple of weeks ahead. You basically were preparing for the situation to maybe happen again. Exactly. And if it did, you'd be ready. After the experience with the officers, Daisy swore to herself that she would always have a plan B. Sure, she received help this time, but what about the next time or the time after that? She needed to figure out a way to keep her and her kids afloat, and everything was about to change. Time went on. I finally did become legal in Canada. We had a second daughter, 
Eventually, my former husband and I divorced. I ended up leaving when my youngest daughter was two and my oldest was seven. There was a little bit of a turning point shortly after I got divorced. So in about 2003, there was a power outage. Um, It was a major power outage that took out electricity across a huge part of the eastern seaboard. We lived in the Toronto area at the time, so we were affected for about two or three weeks. All of our food in the fridge spoiled. It was miserable. The kids were hot. It was just really unpleasant. And that's when I thought, okay, I haven't taken this far enough. Haven't taken food preparation and supply preparation. Right. And that's when I started researching other types of preparedness. And I'm not talking like digging a bunker or anything like that. I'm talking about these things that we've all seen just over the past couple of years that can just happen. I started investing more in shelf-stable foods than filling my freezer because I didn't want to see hundreds of dollars of food going bad again. Right now, you know, people might say, oh, you lost $500 worth of food. That's no big deal. $500 worth of food was like a fortune to me at that point. But it just took me right back to the past of abject poverty and not having anything to eat and digging through the garbage. Like, I did not want to experience that again. I got a job in the automotive industry. I ended up being a service manager, like over the next 10 years or so. And I, I did pretty well with it. It was, you know, it was a really good job, but I, I was kind of the, the only woman in the room for many, many years in a corporate job. I definitely wasn't making as much as the other service managers in the company were, but it was still so much more than I was making before. And I think that a lot of women find themselves in similar positions. You're doing way better than you were before. If you rock the boat, you might lose that. But you know that this gender wage gap disparity is not right and it's not fair. I ended up asking if I could work just based on commission and not get a salary anymore. And they said, no, you're crazy. You can't do that. You have kids at home. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm absolutely comfortable doing that. And so I went from one of the lowest, lowest paid managers in the company to the highest because I made myself a sweet little contract with really good commission. They never saw that coming. (laughs) They did not see it coming. They thought that I was an absolute idiot for giving up the sure thing. But it felt to me that it was the right thing to do. And I was tired of my shop making more money than all the other shops and me getting paid less. Daisy must have thought over that decision again and again. Switching to pay on commission was a risk and maybe even a bit out of character. After all, consistency was something she'd sought for so long. But preparing for the future also means taking certain risks into account. Daisy needed more security, and this time that meant gambling more than she was used to. But now, finally, she was regaining control of her life. She could support her children and prepare for the next challenge life would throw her way. 
And with her dad falling ill, that next challenge came. My father got sick. He was terminal. So I was going from Canada back and forth to Memphis, Tennessee, where he was in the hospital. Having the stockpile that I had put together really saved our bacon throughout that time. My ex-husband helped out with the kids because they were in school so that I could go down there and give my mother some relief. After my father passed away and we got back and I got back into my job, I didn't have the same job because I had stepped down. I was no longer management, so I was making less money and I realized I sat down and crunched the numbers and I realized I was just about to lose everything. I was about to lose my house and my car and like all the things I had worked for. How did that, what what was that realization like? Like how did it make you feel? Oh, it was horrible. It was horrible. I had worked so hard to build this little nest for my children And all of a sudden I was losing all of that. And I, I, I lost it all. So I moved to the town where my job was. And uh, shortly after we moved there, uh, my kid's father died. And it was sudden and unexpected. It was just another absolutely enormous hit. How do you cope with all that? I was extremely depressed. I got laid off also during this time um, because this was 2008, 2009. This is when the automotive industry was going belly up. I just kind of laid on the couch and stared at the ceiling for a year. It was terrible. Like it was it was hard to even leave the house. I I was just so embarrassed that I had lost everything again, and I felt like I was back at square one. I got my job back because it was a temporary layoff. And I started thinking about, you know, things my dad and I had talked about when he was sick. He had some dementia, but he also had some times of lucidity, which were really precious. Anyone who's dealt with someone who has dementia knows that those moments of lucidity are, there's such clarity. A person with dementia really loses their filter, their tact, and they just say what's on their mind. Whether it's actually rational or not, they're going to say what's on their mind. The day before he died, I was sitting with him and I had this feeling that, you know, this was pretty much it and it was nearing the end. And we were just talking and he said to me, girl, what are you going to do with your life? And I said, I'm going to be a writer, dad. You know that. I've always told you that's what I'm going to do. And he said, no, you're not. I was just, I was completely taken aback. I said, well, of course I am. I've, I've said that my entire life. He said, you've said it. You talk about writing, but you don't write. Writers write. They don't talk about writing. I, I, I didn't really say anything because I was so hurt by his lack of faith in me. I was really bothered by that. 
I didn't have time to completely absorb it at the at that time because he died the day after he said that. Over the next couple of years, while everything was completely falling apart, I kept thinking about him saying that. And I kept thinking, you know, he's right. I don't write. I just talk about writing. That was when I started writing about a year after he passed away. I would get up at four o'clock in the morning and I had picked up just some online work, ghostwriting for some other people. And I would get up and I would write and I did it every single day. And that's also how I started my business was like at four o'clock in the morning while my kids were still in bed. First, I worked in the health, fitness and nutrition field because I had a little bit of a background in that. Then I was writing about emergency preparedness for some other people. I also wrote in the alternative news um, sector. So I had a lot of small gigs that I just kind of put together. And it wasn't really so much about the money as it was about the writing. Getting the experience, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But after my, my kid's dad had passed away, I decided that I had to make a change. And so I quit my job, which sounds like such an idiotic thing to do when I've just (laughs) lost my house and lost my car. And like, I mean, you know, we sat there in the middle of the night and watched the tow truck hook up my car and pull it away. And we were sitting there on our front steps and our neighbors were coming out going, what the heck is going on? I said, you know, I'm just, this is my chance. I'm going to go for it. Just because of the way it was set up, I was also able to claim unemployment for a year. So I had a small amount of money coming in and I had a small amount of money put back. So I took the money I had put back and bought an old crappy truck. And my oldest daughter was going away to college. And my youngest daughter and I moved out to the boondocks. I did a search on Kijiji, which is the Canadian version of Craigslist, and I sorted rentals by lowest to highest, and I found the cheapest place in Ontario, Canada, and I moved to that. This was her chance. Daisy limited her choices to the cheapest place she could possibly find, and this was out of necessity, of course, but it also took all of the stress out of her decision-making. And with some freed up brain space and a place of her own, she could finally dedicate time to her craft. And maybe this cabin in the middle of the forest, not much to look at, and with spotty internet and seriously subpar heating, maybe that was just what Daisy needed to focus on her writing. It was a little cabin in the Algonquin Forest. It had electricity sometimes. It had internet sometimes. It was heated by wood. But you need internet and electricity to write. Like if your goal is to write for the the next period of time, how did you do that? You know, I just managed because it was the only way to make this happen was to cut my expenses to absolute rock bottom. That is where I started my website, The Organic Prepper. I had gotten a job with an alternative media company. I 
after about six months, was basically running several of their websites. And um, I had a mentor, like the owner, just took me under his wing and taught me everything he knew. And he kept telling me, you need your own website. You need your own website. You have a lot to say. And you're a great writer. You need a place where you can write your stuff that doesn't have to be tailored for my audience. I finally decided to go ahead and start this website. And it was to document us being city girls moving out to the woods and uh, living in, I wouldn't call it primitive conditions, but... But you don't have energy or internet uh, regularly, so you kind of have to fend for yourself a little bit. Really, the issue was the heat. (laughs) That was the issue. Um, Like, the internet... I had workarounds in place so that if I had a day or a couple of days that I couldn't get on the internet, I could just like drive to the library and work there. But the heat, it took me months to learn how to build a fire that would stay lit in a wood stove. And that was the only form of heat in the cabin. A few months in, I was pretty sure we were going to die. I was just sitting in front of this wood stove sobbing because we didn't have anywhere to go back to. We couldn't afford to move. And if I couldn't light this freaking fire, we were going to freeze to death because the temperatures were starting to drop really low. And we were in a place where it got as cold as like negative 50 degrees. So it took me over a month to get that fire lit where it would stay lit. And I cannot tell you the celebration that ensued when I woke up the next morning and still had coals and some warmth in my in my wood stove. Like it was just incredible. I want to take a second to think about the sort of project Daisy embarked on when she decided to live in that cabin in the woods. Daisy had intended to drastically cut her expenses by finding a cheap place to live, but this new spot came with its own danger, and this wasn't the kind of thing Daisy had prepared for. Now, she was faced with the horrible question of whether she and her kids would make it if she couldn't get the stove lit. Unbeknownst to her, by securing that cabin, she also signed up for a crash course in survival. And that was just what the organic prepper needed in order to find its voice and take off. I wrote a controversial article the first week I had my website. The Sandy Hook shooting had just occurred. And some of the mainstream media was talking about how the whole thing had happened because the mom of the boy who shot up the school was a prepper. And I wrote an article kind of disputing that. A bigger website picked it up and republished it. And then Yahoo News wrote an article making fun of my article, basically talking about what an idiot I was. All of a sudden, I had thousands of people coming to my blog to tell me I was an idiot. Yeah. How did you feel about that? You're getting all this attention, but it's not necessarily positive attention. It was horrible attention. People were saying stuff like, 
I hope your kids die in a school shooting, or I hope someone comes and kills and rapes your entire family. I mean, like really dreadful things. I wanted to quit. And my mentor is like, you can't quit now. Just keep writing what you've been writing. It's all going to be okay. So I didn't read the comments for a month. I did one reading of the comments so I could write an article about how horrible these people were. Well, that article got the attention of a lot of people in the preparedness community. That was kind of how I built my audience. Is there an article that you've written in the past like a year or so that you feel like you're most proud of or symbolizes or embodies what the prepper community is today and how far you've come from that cabin? I wrote one about how preparedness really needs to change because now it's more about resilience than it is about just stacking your cans 25 high. Now it's about dealing with these changes that are hitting us one after another. You know, we go to stores now and where we used to have our shelves were absolutely jam-packed and there was more in the back. Now we've got like three or four choices for, you know, laundry detergent or sheets or whatever it is that we happen to be shopping for. And if there's one good thing that has come out of the pandemic, it is that people realize our systems are fragile and that things can change overnight and that they have the power within them to be prepared for that so it doesn't hit them quite as hard. We've seen over the past two years a major decline of our system and our supply chain. It has been to the extent that everybody is paying attention to it. Daisy brings up a good point about consumer choice. We often see freedom of choice as a pretty good measure of personal freedom. But an interesting problem arises when adding too many choices. Psychologist Barry Schwartz's book, The Paradox of Choice, discusses how modern Americans have more choice than any other group in history. You might think that means modern Americans have the most freedom ever, but it turns out that having more freedom of choice actually leaves people feeling frustrated and powerless. And that's because for the one choice you do make, you're leaving behind the potential behind every other choice. This was the kind of stuff Daisy was seeing, and it would be ideas like this that helped her create a foundation for her comeback. The backlash from the Yahoo News article hit her hard, and I get it. And when it's your own creation, it always seems to hit much harder. But with the encouragement of her mentor and the support of her readers, Daisy was able to reclaim what inspired her to begin with. She was confident in her voice, and she was determined to share it. She still is. What are you most excited for in the future? What do you think like your biggest learning lesson from this whole experience has been? I write a lot of books. I'm the author of 16 books. I've done a lot of traveling. I've prepped in a lot of different settings. I spent the past three years abroad living in different countries for a few months at a time to see what I could learn you know, just to go exploring, kind of back to that whole nomad lifestyle again. And I think that the fact that you can be better prepared no matter where you are or who you are is the thing that I'm most excited about. So if you were to give like a few most essential tips for people to be more prepared, 
for these scenarios where things aren't as predictable as they might have used to be, what would those tips be? Always be ready to change your plan. It's really great to have a plan, but if I've learned anything in my life, it's that you have to always be ready to change that plan. You have to be ready to recognize when your plan is not working and move on to a different plan. So always be ready to be flexible, think on your feet and move on to something else. Is there any like specific advice, like buy this certain material or like, how is your food in this way? Or these are the most essential items that you need that you don't realize you need. I suggest that you take a notebook and you write down everything you use in a day, whether that's salt and pepper on your food, some particular spice, something you take from your freezer, shampoo, conditioner, soap, razors, dog food, kitty litter, diapers, whatever you particularly use. Those are the things you need to stockpile. So you've gone from poverty to like running a very successful website with millions of views and uh, you, have, you have employees and you're a leader in your niche. What advice do you think you would give to your younger self to get to where you are a little bit more quickly? <laughs> Start sooner. Um, be willing to put yourself first. And what I mean by that is when anyone asks me how to start a website, the thing that I tell them is you have to put your business first before everything else in your life. If you don't do your stuff first, there's always going to be something that gets in the way. So always, always, always put your business first. Make that the very first thing. And that's true of any goal that you really want to achieve, whether it's fitness or you know, writing a book or having a website, whatever you want to achieve, that has to be the first thing you do in the day. Years ago, Daisy was sitting in a small cabin without a heater, desperately trying to make a fire so she and her kids wouldn't freeze. The lows she experienced are unfathomable, but because of them, she discovered the necessity of preparation. And also, she found a way to share this with others. There are a lot of stereotypes that form the image of what a prepper is supposed to be. But when listening to Daisy, with her fierce entrepreneurial spirit and unwavering resilience, I didn't see any of that. Just a person who's been through ridiculously challenging experiences and is preparing for the next one. Because, yeah, crises are inevitable. Just take a look at the past year. For over two weeks during Texas's power crisis in February 2021, millions of homes were left without power and food and water became scarce. In August, heavy rainfall led to widespread and catastrophic flash floods in Waverly, Tennessee. Homes were destroyed, many were left without power, and people lost their lives. And in 2020 and 2021, the world came to a screeching halt because of COVID. The bottom line is, shit happens. And you can never predict exactly when. So while I'm not sure I could get away with digging a fallout shelter in LA, I do think there's value in preparation. Worst case scenario, you have a few extra cans of food for later.
Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Berkel, Matt Fernandez, Nay Buchanan, Sophia Donner, Maura Lynch, Zoe Maddox, Ashley Jimenez, Michael Chung, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Lois Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong, with support from Sarah Hobson, Melody Sopani, Cherise Tan, Jake Wiley, Ibadat Rai, and Mecca Shelton. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Abigail Azardia, Elise Caldwell, Jake Wiley, Jordan Ortiz, and Sanessa Gisley. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Sohail Amatya, Tiffany Dane, Jonathan Wass, and Diana Marie Candazza. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.